Hello and welcome and thank you for downloading another fabulous yes. Books of the Year from your friends at Books of the Year. It's wonderful to be back. And before we get into the books, I think yes. we need to get an answer from you. What? Uh, which is what the nation wants to know, which is when exactly are you going to be building your statue to Jose Mourinho outside of White Hart Lane, given everything is going so swimmingly you well. you think it's going well? He is not the Antichrist. He is getting you up the table, uh, much, much against what everyone was saying when he joined. When's the statue being? Built. I'm going to concentrate on an email from Sandra Golden, Oh, really? Which the answer is Christ. never, in my opinion. <laughs> Happy Christmas, says Sandra. Hope the job searching is going well for Matt. Mm, yes. How is that going? It's going okay. Just wanted to write to you to say a massive thank you to the two of you for such a brilliant podcast. It's so refreshing to hear you talk honestly to each other without the bird song. You always sound so happy and like you're enjoying yourself. Like we are. Your yeah. interviews with Lee Child were an absolute joy. He is such a lovely bloke who is happy to answer your questions without any reservations. I have shared the interview with lots of my friends, as I know a lot of people who are not happy with Tom Cruise's casting. Lee's comments made me laugh out loud. One question, why is he called Lee Child when his name is James? Just seen the trailer for Itch. Looks amazing. Oh, yeah. Thanks again. This is because the Itch TV show is, uh, the trailer is out there and it launches in Australia on December 31st. Wow. And are we able to say where else it might be shown? Will we be able to see it in this country? Are you able to say that yet? You can't say that yet. Disgrace. Okay, Duncan Garner uh, on email says, Dear Simon and Matt, I love your podcast and have listened since the very beginning. I have to say that the Adele Parks episode has been one of, if not the, best episode ever. I love that one. She was so funny. Uh, so interesting. I listen to you guys on my way to work. I live in a remote area of Cambodia. The nearest bookshop is a five-hour drive away. Before your podcast, I never had any idea of what books to buy for my my Kindle. Now, I've read books that I'd never have dreamed of if it wasn't for you guys, so a big thank you. I was dyslexic at school, so reading was not really my thing. Now it feels like I'm playing catch-up. Do you have any personal recommendations for must-read books? P.S. I have read Mad Blood Stirring. Yes. But don't just leave yeah. What about it? Yes. Well, you've well, read, I've, it I've and, read it. I mean, the fact and, that, that your books are getting mentioned in consecutive emails. Um, well, we should I, say book of, this being the book of the year podcast, we should say what's been our book of the year. What I would say, it's, for me, joint between Alex Michaelides' Silent Patient and Anita Anand's The Patient Assassin. So both actually, very the good. Yeah. Silent Patient Assassin would <laughs> encompass both of them. That's one one spin-off book. Yes. And you? Uh, mine will be uh, The Arsonist by Chloe Hooper, uh, which I loved. And I remember saying, if there's a better book than this one, then it'll be an amazing year. And it's still it's my standout book for this year. I'd really recommend that one. If you'd like to get in touch at any stage, uh, sorry we haven't had time to do lots of emails today, but no. we have important business to attend to, as in do the interview with Michael Lewis. Correct. Um, you can email books of the year yahoo.com and you can tweet us at books of the year and we'll be back with a really shiny new series next year yes we will can't Mean, wait meantime we have a very very big guest for you to meet so here we are on our books of the year podcast and delighted to welcome michael lewis who has yet another bestseller it's called the fifth risk hello michael very nice to see you again thank you for having me on how are you I think I'm pretty good. I mean, usually you catch me at the end of a book tour in Britain, and I'm not very good, but I feel great. No, I, I've, I've, I've just, the, the, I, I, love, I love being in the city. I <laughs> love being in the city. You've, well, and you lived in London for quite a few years. I did. It was first, I, right after college, I came here, and, I, and this is where I started my writing career. This is where my book, first book was published. This is where my first magazine articles were published. You yeah. were at the LSE, is that right? I was. Yeah. Yeah. So when you come back to the UK, do you think uh, part of my life was here and I can't wait to come back? Or do you think, what a quaint 
rather strange? Because you've been here for a very interesting few days. Uh, do you think, what on earth is going on here? I don't know. What, what, what's your take on on the UK? Um, so I, I don't think it was a quaint part of my past I've left behind. If I had to live in a, a major city, I would live here. I, and it, I, but it's transformed. I mean, I was here. I came here in 1983. Oh, right. Okay. For, until 1990 or 91. Well, we're in so King's Cross. And this so, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was at the beginning. I was at the beginning of our early days of Margaret Thatcher, middle days of Mar Margaret Thatcher. And what is going on now seems trivial compared to that. The, the cultural transformation that she engineered w was so much more traumatic than all this Brexit stuff. I mean, I know, I, I understand why people are worked up about Brexit, but it does, it feels like, it, it, this feels like a, a comic version of that. Uh, so, and, and so it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel, so I don't, and I don't look at your politics. My God, I don't look at your politics and think what's going on there. Look at my, look at our politics. <laughs> I think you've got it. I, I think you've got it so much better in some ways. You think? Oh. See, now the, the reason I started here is that, so the book is The Fifth Risk. Maybe, so Matt, describe the cover. Yes, okay. Formalities. So a great cover, by the way. Um, well, it's, it's a black background. And then we've got now, I'm going to say that's um, uh, it's, it's the uh, US flag superimposed on what we will call Jenga. Yeah, game is, Jenga. is that a Jenga? Is that's that a in Jenga the States? Jenga? Yep. Lovely. Um, so, yes, yeah, superimposed on Jenga. Uh, the Fifth Risk, Michael Lewis in red at the bottom, number one best-selling author of The Big Short. Uh, and then a very nice uh, bump from the Daily Telegraph. Riveting, jaw-dropping. Lewis's take on Trump is stranger and more terrifying than fiction. Okay, so this is just an explanation as to why I started talking about our politics. The fifth risk is? The fifth risk is is the risk of Donald Trump running the federal government. Uh, it's, the, it's the risk. I, why the fifth? What happened to the fourth? Well, so, so I'll tell you how it happened. That when, after he was elected, I sat down with someone who had just left the energy department who knew what it went on in the energy department? I asked him, what are the top five risks you worry about the most? And he was able to rattle off four very quickly. It was the energy department runs the nuclear arsenal. So he was, they were worried that a nuclear bomb would, at any given time would go off when it shouldn't. They, they helped manage the electric grid. They worried that parts of the grid were vulnerable to terrorist attack and it would be catastrophic. He, went out. he was worried about it, Iran getting a nuclear weapon. The Energy Department helped negotiate that deal that Trump has walked away from. And they were really worried about the North Koreans' ability to launch a rocket and hit U.S. soil. And they actually were overseeing that, studying the North Koreans. And I said, what's the fifth? And there was a long pause and he couldn't think of it. And I thought to myself, that's my title because... Mm -hmm. It's the risk you're not thinking of right. is the one you have to worry about. And and the government manages this vast portfolio of really existential risks. Because one of the – so the reason why I started off talking about our politics is you talking here about, you know, the death of expertise, the exaltation of ignorance and so on. And in the referendum campaign over here, uh, one of the – most prominent leave politicians and now very prominent in the conservative government, Michael Gove, made this quote about, we've had enough of experts. And it was picked up by a lot of people because he's a super smart guy. And I was thinking, what on earth are you talking about? How can you ever have had enough of experts? And it was that quote more than anything else when I was enjoying the fifth risk very, very much, thinking, this is a weird mindset where anybody, whatever their take on the world, whether, you know, whatever you believe in, how can anybody not want to be as well-informed as it is possible to be? As bad as Michael Gove's quote is, it's been 
replayed to me a hundred times as as the worst thing that happened kind of thing like an example of of how bad it's gotten there's not a there's not a republican in the congress never mind never mind trump who who doesn't say the same thing one way or another every day i mean that we, we were the level of disdain for expertise so i would be interesting if i sat down with michael gove if he would be a climate denier a climate change denier probably not no i don't think he if is. i gave him if i gave him some basic physics uh or if I gave him a physicist explain to him how a nuclear weapon worked would he say nah you don't know what you're talking about he was really talking about i think probably political science more than anything. he was talking about the people who are analyzing what happens with brexit i think and to be fair to him i'm not trying to defend him uh political scientists and economists don't have a really great track record. I mean, you know, they, 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 it's a different kind of expertise than the kind of expertise that is under assault in the Trump administration. Basic, hard science, hard scientific expertise is under assault in the Trump administration mm. in the most breathtaking ways. So it's worth it. My point is that as bad as you think you have it in, uh, in this regard, we have it, I think, worse. I wrote down so many things as I, as I was going through it. But maybe to illustrate that point that you're making, and again, I, so I apologize for the cussing here, although I'm taking some of it out. This is from Steve Bannon, who I think you interviewed for, the, for this did. book. Yeah. Talking about Trump. This guy doesn't know anything and he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. You know, which seemed to be the most perfect description of what you're talking about, this kind of elevation of ignorance so, that, But not only that, there's lots of people know stuff, a lot of people don't know stuff, but to be proud of the fact you don't know stuff and you're the number one guy in the country, that's scary. And, and at, at the same time, um, disparaging any knowledge that anyone else claims to have so that you create this, this, this really disturbing playing field where, where you're not sure if anybody knows anything and, and he's done it so that he's not at a disadvantage from his lack of knowledge. That's the thing that, so, so, you know, the whole fake news stuff, the whole calling into question climate science, all, all this stuff creates an environment where there, there's no such thing really as knowledge. It's just a bunch of opinions it, it, that, that he's trying to create that environment where people are just shouting at each other and it's who you want to believe. I, I, I'm going to lift uh, another quote from your book, which I think is, is one that you came up with, um, which uh, made me stop in my tracks as I as I read it because um, it resonated so deeply. And that is, uh, you said, there is an upside to ignorance, there is a downside to knowledge. Knowledge makes life messier. And the reason why that stuck with me is that, that so there is a um, fr- w- close friend of mine uh, who uh, is an American. We met when I was, both when well, both of us were in our 20s, we're living in Paris and um, going to college together. And he's a Republican. And I often, you know, I love having conversations with him. And certainly over the last few years, it's been particularly illustrative of, of, of what's been going on. And I've asked him numerous times, obviously, about Trump. And he is very honest with me and says he's he's a Republican and he says, I hate the guy. He's obviously incompetent. He's obviously not fit to govern. However, 
he is giving me what I want. What he, is, is, what? he is giving me tax cuts. He is, um, this uh, friend of mine, his uh, family are uh, very strongly anti-abortion and uh, they feel he is uh, uh, filling the Supreme Court with with uh, justices who will eventually overturn Roe v. Wade. Whether that's true or not, uh, who knows? But that's what they, they feel. He is delivering for us. We know he's incompetent. And that, that w- what has struck me reading the book is that those supporters, those certainly those political supporters of Trump, are now divided into two. Either you are being willfully ignorant, or it's because it's politically convenient for you to support him. I, I would struggle to think there is anyone who says, yeah, this guy is well suited to office. He, you know, he went into that job and he's done a great job so far. Really? Because uh, to the objective observer, it certainly doesn't appear like that. No, I think if your point is that even his his biggest supporters feel a kind of contempt for him, uh, it's well taken. That's true. Uh, he's a, I don't think he's actually loved. He's feared uh, within his own party by by politicians because he can he, because he's willing to tweet and destroy you. Uh, he's um, admi- I think he's admired by some streak of the American public because they think he's a big success. They think he's much richer than he is. They think he was more of a successful businessman than he actually was. Um, and the people who disregard it as a matter of expedience, that he will put the people on the Supreme Court that they want or cut their taxes. So I think that's I think that's right. Um, and the one of the things that has struck me in the course of working on the book, because the book for me, it wasn't just it wasn't just Trump is horrible. It was it was much more a kind of a positive thing that was I was surprised by what the, what I found that was left in the government that was worth celebrating in spite of the assault on the government um but the thing that it was really striking and I think eventually is going to catch up to him and to the Republican party is that the the things yes he's giving some people what they actually want like there are some rich people who all they care about is the taxes they pay uh or there's some religious people who all they care about is the abortion issue. But for the vast majority of Trump supporters, the things he's doing are actively harmful to them economically. Uh, so you got, um, I mean, one of the things that was most noticeable about the electoral map the la- when, he, when he was last up for vote, when he was up for vote for the last presidential election, is that the more rural the person, uh, the more likely they were to vote for Trump. The, the fewer number of people in their town, uh, the more likely they went for Trump. And those, it's also true that the more rural the person in America, the more utterly dependent they are on the federal government. That, that rural America, as someone told me, would look like rural India were it not for the federal government. You go to any small town and there's a firehouse and there's a hospital and there's a schoolhouse None of that is paid for, for by the state or by the by the, the or, or by the local. It's the federal government that's subsidizing that through the agriculture department, and he's waged war on that place. Uh, and I just wonder how long it takes for people, kind of think, yeah, maybe he's not actually. I have problems, but maybe he's not actually the, the solution to them. Writing a book about the, the the Trump administration is something other people have done. What 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 you do better than anyone else is you find it seems to be is you find you know a very complex subject then you de- demystify it and you find a side door into 
as a way of telling a story. So you'll introduce us to a bunch of characters yeah. and we understand the bigger picture through understanding the smaller picture. So how did you end up writing this? Because obviously you're thinking, I want to write a thing about you. Did, was it a search for the characters? Is that where it started? So it's, I tell you where it started. Um, it started with a, a folder. I have by my desk, uh, you know, 50 manila folders with thoughts I had that might one day, one way or another, turn into books. And years ago, I, I scribbled on a folder how strange it was that Americans were so hostile to their own government given that they elected that government. And where was that? Where did that come from and what did it mean? So I had that in the back of my mind when Trump was elected. And then he did what he did right after he was elected. That he, By law, he'd been required to build this transition effort. By law, the Obama administration had been required to prepare to hand the government over. And this was a quite elaborate exercise. I mean, a thousand people working for six months for the Obama administration just building the briefing books that would enable someone, you or me, not knowing anything, to walk in and take over and run this place. So it wasn't ideological. It was a how-to. It was, it was how do you stop the spread of, a, uh, of the Ebola virus when it, when it lands in America? Or, or what do you do after a hurricane destroys a city? Now, it really was how-to. And the Trump outfit, which had been put together pretty conscientiously by Chris Christie, um, uh, got fired by Trump the day after the election. And so the way my side door in was right there. That's when I thought, oh my goodness, he's electrified this material for me because I could, I mean, I could still, but I, when I, up to the point when I finished the book, uh, go into de any department of government and ask to see the briefing on any subject and be virtually sh certain that this briefing never was given, that I'd be the first person to hear it. So on, on matters as, as grave as grave as how we manage the nuclear arsenal. So that, then I knew that if I had that, I could walk, I had a device for walking a, a reader through the government, and the question was how to do that, where, where you went. Uh, so the second trick, there were a couple of tricks, was, was to go to places where no one would imagine that what was at stake was, was some existential threat that, yeah, you know, in the defense department, it's important, or yeah, you know, the treasury must be important or even state department, right? You know, but, but do you know what goes on in the commerce department? No, nobody knows what goes on in the commerce department, but you would not believe how important it is. So then it became characters and the characters were so easy to find because once you start asking questions about the basic mission of government, you would be amazed who is there right behind that question who's was is there because they were attracted to specifically the mission and and those people someone who's attracted to a mission is already got this the central quality in any good character they're obsessed with something and they're obsessed it's it's not maybe something might not be something you would be obsessed with like making sure the census is done then it sounds boring but it's actually now, we, we, without it, we don't know who's in the country. We don't know who we are as a people. And someone who gets really worked up about the problem is an interesting character. And they are, they were almost well, all, to a person that, I, that, that became a character in my book, there were people who could ma have made multiples the money working in the private sector. They just saw that this was a, actually a meaningful, important job. And that is what got them there. So then I had everything you needed, and it was just a question of when you stopped. Uh, Can you give us an example of the kind of characters that we're talking absolutely. about? Absolutely. Let's do what, so I'll, 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 the character I'll talk about is a character, um, when the book was done, the only regret I had, even though I left you know, nine-tenths of the government on the cutting room floor, was that I, 
I had not just isolated a single character for a very long stretch and and just done a character study of a government worker um, in a kind of general way. So when the government shut down in the beginning of this year, I and 800,000 government workers were sent home without pay, I asked uh, for a list uh, from a, a, fa- an organ- a nonprofit organization that gave kind of awards to people who'd done well in government, obscure awards. But I said, give me a list of all your nominees for this year. It was hundreds and hundreds of names. And I thought, all right, I'm going to take, is alphabetized. I'll take the first name on the list. So I just called this guy up randomly. His name was Arthur A. Allen. Made to <laughs> be on the, the top of every list. Yeah. Top of every yeah. list his whole through the whole <laughs> lifetime. And I call him and he, he's a oceanographer, the lone oceanographer in the Coast Guard Search and Rescue Division. Americans, it turns out, have an unbelievable talent for getting lost at sea. Uh, that we that, that thir- on average, 13 Americans a day on average are lost at sea. 10 are saved, three die. It turns out that number used to be a lot worse. And the maybe the biggest reason it's it's gotten better is Arthur A. Allen. Arthur A. Allen came into government as a young late in his late 20s, in the in the late 1970s, out of graduate school, because he saw this ad for this job and he thought it sounded an oceanographer and coast guard search and rescue, but he could have gone to pri- the private sector. And pretty quickly, as the only scientist on hand, he starts getting asked questions that um, he says, I realize if I don't know the answer to, nobody knows, but there's no particular reason I should know the answer, but I'd better go find it because if I don't know it, nobody knows it. So questions like, uh, we're looking for three men whose whose boat capsized in a winter storm. Uh, we know they're in uh, Mustang survival suits. How long can they live in those suits before they're dead? Before When should we stop searching? And he goes and you know, with other scientists, figures out the answer to that. At some point, he realizes that uh, people are not being found for a very particular reason. And the particular reason is the Coast Guard doesn't have a good handle on how different objects drift differently at sea. If you and I are dropped in the water at the same place at the same time, the different shapes of our bodies, Mm. well, that will be enough to separate us by miles after a little bit. And he realizes this when I go see Arthur Allen and I asked him, why did you devote your life to this? He says, I'll show you. He goes to his bookshelf and he pulls out this yellowing copy of an old newspaper and he gives me the story and he starts to cry as he tells me the story. The story is he was watching a a rescue uh, operation in the Chesapeake Bay uh, when he was still a pup and a boat with a 12-year-old girl and a mom, sailboat, had capsized in a surprise storm. And they didn't find them. And when they found them, they were both dead of hypothermia. Um, and they didn't find them because they couldn't, they, although they knew where the boat had capsized, they didn't know how an 18-foot sailboat overturned, drifted. So he sp- devotes his career to tossing objects in the Long Island Sound, different shape, different sizes, rafts, sailboats, uh, human beings and life preservers, um, and, and studying their drift and reducing it to a series of equations. It, the effect is so dramatic that in 2001, when he, reels, when he rolls out the, these equations and gives them to the, the Coast Guard to go help them search, uh, he goes to the Miami office first because it's the most active. And uh, weeks after he gives them this, a 300-pound man runs through his window of a Carnival cruise ship 60 miles off the coast of Miami 
is not discovered missing for several hours. But because they have the cameras on the side of the ship, they can go back and look at the tape and see where he went in the water. They tell the Coast Guard, guys overboard, three hours ago, here's where we were. Any other time in human history, that man is dead. You won't find him. I mean, he's just gone. Most times in human history, they wouldn't even bother looking. Coast Guard plugs in, overweight man in the water. That's how he drifts. Six hours after he's in the water, seven hours that they pluck him out, totally alive and fine. All the news articles are about the miracle of these people who go in, who rescued him. No one asks, how did they find him? That was Arthur Allen. So Arthur A. Allen is deemed inessential by the United States government when it shuts down, sent home without pay, told he's not worth anything, and decides in the end he's just going to retire. He's in his 60s anyway. His expertise, completely invented by himself, uh, has not been replaced. He hasn't been replaced. He's not taught anybody what he knows. So it's just walked out the door. And I think of him as a little microcosm of the problem. Uh, I, lo- I, I love that section of the book. And I'm, normally, obviously, we would never talk about the last... Yeah, the, the end the of last, the book. The last parts of the book. But that, that, I love that last section where th- there's another rescue that he has, that his work has helped happen. And he happens to be there as the congratulating the Coast Guard. And I, I love this little thing. And I know that there's, you know, interest in making this into a movie. But that sequence is definitely going to be in the movie where someone just turns around to Arthur and says only to him and only loud enough for him to hear, good job. It, and it's because th- those guys were only able to rescue him because of what you did. It felt like your book was a love letter to the US government at a time when the US government is under attack. Yeah. It was a love letter to people like him. I just wanted to let him know that someone appreciates him. <laughs> yeah. And 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 the curious thing, maybe the funny kicker to the story, this isn't in the book. So I call this fellow, right? Out of the blue. He doesn't know who he doesn't know who I am. He, I, I tried to explain what I was doing, but he clearly didn't listen very well because I went and spent three days with him at his home, met his family, went back to his old office with him, kind of relived his life. As I was going back to the airport afterwards, um, I get this text from him and it says, hey, hey, you're an author. And I said, yeah, I'm an author. Why did you think I was there, you know, grilling you for three days? He goes, he goes, oh, he said, I thought you were just interested in search and rescue. <laughs> and, 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 but, but the point was that these people, that's, that's typical. He, these people have no predilection and no, no ability to market themselves, to tell their stories. He didn't even think he was a story. I mean, it was, he was kind of surprised I was so interested. And so they're kind of the opposite of Trump in a funny way, right? That they do all this stuff, they know all this stuff, and they don't sell themselves. Um, And that, that, I mean, that's, you were asking me what the literary opportunity is. The literary opportunity is you've got these people with these unbelievable stories that don't tell them. Yeah. Right? It's hard to feel optimistic. I mean, I know you say you're writing a positive book about these extraordinary people, and that's right. But it doesn't take long for people like that to walk out or to be not wanted and for that expertise to leave. So whoever takes over, whether it be the next election or the election after that, these departments, energy, agriculture, commerce, never mind the other ones, it's going to take a while to recover that kind of expertise. You can't just do it overnight. There is going to have to, the culture has to wake up and realize that this enterprise is at the center of the culture. And that that um and you're right 
the first order of business is going to be there's going to have to be – if Donald Trump loses the next election, there's no way he's going to prepare to hand over the government. In any way, he has no one there to, to do it for him, uh, no one who do it well. So probably what would happen is the Obama people would come running back and try to figure out what had happened and help the people who were coming in to – if I had to bet. But the, the, the bigger problem is it's not just Trump. That we, have, we have abused our government, underinvested in it in, in really peculiar ways. Here's a, t- a telling, telling fact, and I wonder if it's echoed in the UK government. But there are five times more people in the United States government in information technology – you know, in computers and stuff, over the age of 60 than under the age of 30. Now, I don't know anybody over the age of 60 who knows how to use their cell phone. And that's what's now, what's this aging, decaying workforce is is doing its best to keep it all kind of, young people aren't coming in. So it, it, it got, what has to happen, actually what has to happen is government service needs to be cool again for young people. Yeah, uh, You need to attract talent. Yeah, really. What I I just want to add as well is that what this what is at the root of this, as far as Trump is concerned, is just a lack of curiosity. It's I don't I'm not interested in this, so I'm not going to bother learning anything about it. Right up until the point where, and we, you see this when we're talking about the weather um, service. Right up until the point where the, oh, there might actually be a commercial advantage to this or a commercial application to this information and data. If I can use it to make money. Now I'm interested. Yeah, this actually touches on the UK interests because the way um, weather prediction works, it turns entirely on data collection efforts by governments. And to, for a really good weather model, the US needs the UK data and the UK needs the US data. And we collect, the weather service collects our data. We've got satellites in the sky. We've got buoys on the sea. We've got uh, radar across the country. That data is important, actually, not just to the U.S. It's important to everybody. Um, and Trump uh, put into the – or tried. It's just been squashed. He's just decided he's not going to take the job, but it gives you a sense of what's going on. Trump tried to install in charge of the weather service a man who had a company called AccuWeather um, who's uh, – whose job is to repackage um, the data that the government provides him with as private weather forecasts, and who has been single-handedly trying to stymie um, the ability of the weather service to communicate with the American public so that AccuWeather can make more money doing it privately. He's been quite open about it. So if you talk to people in the weather service, who would you like running it, running this place? He might be the last name in America. And I mean, almost anybody else. And, uh, and it's, but this is what happens when you have a president who has absolutely no interest in the mission and signals it. He says, I don't, you know, whoever is interested, show up. And what happens is these people show up who've got a commercial interest. Uh, and that's what happened there. And really lucky that, I mean, some senators stopped him, stopped his nomination. One, one final point, just because I couldn't let you go without mentioning this story. I mean, it's another head in the hand story. But right at the beginning of the book, when Trump has just been elected and he takes a phone call from the president of Egypt. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yes. there were people in the room who told me about this. I wasn't there. So I've got it from people in the room. Okay. Though. Yeah. And he said, I love the bangles. Walk like an Egyptian. Yeah. <laughs> and that was his first reaction. Goodness me. And at that point, you think, okay. And the other thing just to mention is that is it, the Obamas have the film rights for this book. The Obamas, they, they have the, 
production company now, Netflix. And yes, they're making it. It's being made. It's a, it's being made in a, a television series. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna want someone yes. who's concerned and interested and uh, knows a little bit about how government works, then they're kind of like the right people. You, don't you think? And you know what's funny is their interest was not, in fact, very explicitly not in uh, Trump bashing. Their interest was in foregrounding these people. They, like the, yeah. they, they thought these characters are good Heroes. characters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael Lewis, it's a pleasure always to talk to you. Thank you. The book is The Fifth Risk. Thank you very much. Enjoy your time in revamped London. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.